Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. A lot going on in the world. I think I will save the topical stuff for the next podcast. I have an episode of that sort scheduled. But today we're talking about the more ancient questions of philosophy and human vulnerability. Because today I'm speaking with Martha Nussbaum. Martha is a professor of law and ethics in the philosophy department and law school at the University of Chicago. She has won many prizes, including the Kyoto Prize in Arts and Philosophy, the Bergruen Prize in Philosophy and Culture, the Holberg Prize, and these are among the prizes that are regarded as most prestigious for those who are not in fields eligible for Nobel Prizes. She has written more than 22 books, including Upheavals of Thought, Anger and Forgiveness, Not for Profit, The Monarchy of Fear, and most recently, Justice for Animals, Our Collective Responsibility. I've long been wanting to get Martha on the podcast. She's certainly one of the most well-regarded living philosophers, and we cover a lot in this conversation. It has the quality of a debate at points, especially in the second half. We talk about the relevance of philosophy to personal and political problems, the influence of religion, the problem of dogmatism, the relevance of Greek and Roman philosophy to modern thought, the Stoic view of emotions, anger and retribution, deterrence, moral luck, sexual harassment, the philosophical importance of Greek tragedy, grief, human and animal flourishing, what she calls the capabilities approach to valuing conscious life, the rightness or wrongness of moral hierarchies, what she calls the fragility of goodness, and other topics. And now I bring you Martha Nussbaum. I am here with Martha Nussbaum, and uh, the gods of technology have not been kind to us. Martha, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Sam, for inviting me. It's great to be on your program. So, um, yeah, we've had a few hiccups here, uh, which have uh, tried our patience. So we're resetting, and uh, happily we're talking about deep philosophical issues, which uh, will warrant our labors thus far. Martha, can you summarize your background as a philosopher to just tell us the kinds of topics you've focused on? Well, there's a lot to get in here because I'm 75 years old and I started teaching when I was only about 27. But the two big things that I've worked on in my career are on the one hand, work on the emotions. What are emotions like? What role do they play in human life, both personal and political? And then the other is normative political philosophy. What is a minimally just society? What does it do for its people? And what is the right way of thinking about the things that a good society provides? But within that, there are a whole lot of other topics that squeeze their way in. First of all, the history of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, including Greek tragedy. Second, the relationship between philosophy and literature, and more recently, between philosophy and music. The importance of the humanities for a decent public culture. Work on global justice and global society, focusing in particular on India and development projects in mm. India. And finally, work on justice for a group of subordinated people, women in particular, 
sexual orientation minorities, racial minorities, people with disabilities, aging people. I have a recent book on aging, which of course I have a natural interest mm -hmm. in. And uh, finally, non-human animals. So all of those work their way into those two big topics. So I think there's a unity. I mean, I've been often asked why you work on such different things. And often people don't who work on one thing don't know that I've worked on the other. What is the unity? I think the unity is the idea of human vulnerability and more recently the vulnerability of non-human animals. We're all creatures living in a world that we don't control, mm. basing our plans on attachments to things and people outside our own control. How can we think about that? How can we live well? And of course, emotions are come in there because they are expressive of our links to the things outside ourselves that we don't control. That's why the Stoics thought we should get rid of them. But then politics comes in because politics has to think, what are the forms of vulnerability that are good in a human life? For example, the possibility of human love, which is a source of great vulnerability. The possibility of political involvement, which of course mm. is one of the most vulnerable things in the world, as Greek tragedies already show. But also some forms of vulnerability we ought to get rid of. And a good society would not have them. Hunger, thirst, infant mortality, maternal mortality, and a whole, whole long list of other such things, sexual violation and sexual harassment and so forth. So thinking about what are the good forms of vulnerability? What are the bad forms? What should a good society do to create spaces for the good forms and to wipe out the bad forms? That really is a big connection between the two areas of my work. Mm. Well, what role should philosophy play, do you think, in our intellectual and moral and political lives? Because it, you know, from within the academy and, and also from without, it seems there's been a trend that is, has been several, or even many centuries long, which has tended to divorce academic philosophy, at least, from the urgent problems of, of practical ethics in, in most people's lives and even in most academics' lives. I mean, you know, this is a turn that was uh, you know, very clear in the, in the middle of the 20th century with people like Wittgenstein. Have you escaped that? It sounds like you have largely escaped that as a philosopher, but I'm wondering how you view philosophy as a field and its relevance to the rest of what we're doing to try to cooperate with one another. Well, of course, this need for cooperation comes from both sides. On the side of philosophy, I think you're right that there was a time, particularly in the 1950s, when Anglo-American philosophy did not engage very much with ethical problems because, for one thing, they thought that they were not capable of any rational answer. So John Rawls really recreated hmm. political philosophy, and he connected it to a long, long tradition, of course, including such figures as Kant and Adam Smith, but also the Greeks and Romans. And now it's one of the main fields of philosophy, so I'm by no means alone. But there's also the question of who's going to listen to you. Now, in the United States, I would say people don't want to listen to philosophers, and that's part of a long American tradition of partly anti-intellectualism, anti-rationalism, partly of deferring much more to religion mm -hmm. than to philosophy. I mean, I, you know, I can talk to people in government in many nations of the world, most European nations. I go to the Bundestag in Germany. I go to lecture in 
central places in France, Italy, but also India. Mm. You know, but in the United States, you know, no one in Congress. When I gave the Jefferson lecture at the uh, the big humanities lecture, or it's for Congress, but not one congressional representative was actually there. Well, wow. I know personally only one congressman. So, and he was a student of mine. I think you know it is a different tradition, and I think it's part of the basis is actually right. That is, I, I agree with John Rawls that in a pluralistic society, we should not base public choice on any single comprehensive doctrine of the good life. We all have different religions. We all have different secular or religious ideas of how to live. What we should do in politics is to focus on a subset of that, that we could expect people to concur in and form what Rawls calls an overlapping consensus. And that should be the place where philosophy would step in along with other disciplines. So that is a much more restricted role for philosophy than some people have thought. And, but I think it's the right role. So that's the role that I would want to have if anyone wanted to hear from me. What about one's personal orientation toward the good life? I guess there, there are two levels at which we can talk about solving our problems. There's the collective systemic level, and this is you know, where we engage politics and law, et cetera. But then there's just the private reflections and life choices of the individual and the kinds of thoughts one is apt to think when one wakes up at four in the morning. How do you view the relevance of philosophy there to one's private struggles to be happy and fulfilled given the life on offer? I don't, first of all, I don't think philosophers should be telling people how, what to do or how to live. I don't think you should ever tell people what to do unless they've asked your advice. I think it's quite nosy and wrong to go around preaching to other people. I do think that philosophy can give advice on political discourse because we all have to talk together. And the language of philosophical argument is a very, very good language. Socratic reasoning, mm. where we ask the origins of our beliefs and the basis of our beliefs, this has a big role to play in most people's lives because we have to reason together with people who have different religions. So when I teach, especially when I teach undergraduates. That's what I would focus on. That's where I think philosophy should give advice and should train people in, in certain modes of reasoning that they can use together. But, you know, if they're evangelical Christians, they'll use that in political discourse, but in private, they'll do something completely different because they will not want to base their decision-making on rational argument. That's not what their religion teaches them. I happen to be a Reformed Jew. And that's a religion that is about as rationalistic as anyone could be. And so, of course, there's great continuity between my personal deliberation as a Reformed Jew and my public deliberation. But that's not mm -hmm. true for everyone. Catholicism is pretty rationalistic, but most forms of Protestantism believe that faith takes priority over reason. And I'm not going to tell people that that's wrong. That's none of my business. So, but I do think that in this country where we have many different religions, we got to learn how to talk together. And that, that is where I think philosophy has a place. But doesn't that presuppose that uh, at least a certain willingness to divorce oneself from one's cherished dogmas in order to have this conversation across sectarian lines? I mean, what, what kind of conversation can mutually 
canceling dogmatists really aspire to have politically? If, if these are dogmas, they really are willing to live and die for. Well, I think, first of all, it has to be on a narrow range of topics. You don't want to get into discussion of the ultimate fate of the soul after death. There's no point. It, it isn't part of the political problems that you're facing, and people will never end up agreeing on that. So you leave out certain topics. But it also should be, as it were, metaphysically thin, so you don't use notions that stir up endless controversy, like do we have a soul or not? You try to find a neutral ethical language. And actually, the people who framed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights did a really good job on that because they realized they came from, let's say, a French Catholic was one of the leading architects. There was somebody from Egypt who was there. There was Eleanor Roosevelt who was there. Hmm. There was somebody from China who was there. And they realized right away that they couldn't use the metaphysical language of any of their religious traditions. So they found the neutral language of human dignity, which they felt they could agree on. And that's why the human rights tradition has proceeded the way it has. We think about agreeing on the idea that all human beings have a fundamental dignity that must be respected by laws and institutions. But we leave it to the religions to say, mm. what's the, how do we cash that out? Is it because we have an immortal soul? Is it just because we're on the earth? That's not the business of philosophy in the public sphere. Right. But it, it, it just seems to me that when it really matters, which is to say when push comes to shove, something has to give here. So you have various religious cultures that are you know, honor cultures effectively. And one can argue whether the honor part is, you know, orthogonal to the actual religious tenets. I think in most cases, you, you can't really argue that, although people have tried. Uh, I think the honor is built into many of the dogmatic beliefs. And so you have a notion that, you know, let's say when a, a young woman gets raped, she has brought shame upon the family. And it's the sort of shame that in, in certain cultures and even subcultures in the West, could cause her to be the victim of, of violence uh, from her father or, or her brother or her husband. And so I mean, clearly, I, we can't tolerate that politically in a developed society where we, we care about the vulnerable. And yet, a significant portion of any society can argue that this is part of their deeply held religious worldviews to treat women this way. I'm just wondering what you, how you would advocate we we navigate moments like that, given the respect you have for people's religious beliefs and given your recognition that since there are so many diverse beliefs on offer, you have to negotiate sort of above all of those commitments in some way. I think, you you know, you just have to forge ahead and see how far you can get. Most religious people are interested in living on terms of, on the one hand, religious freedom, and on the other hand, goodwill and cooperation with their fellow citizens. And the religions have evolved in keeping with that. Religions like my own have evolved, but also so too have has Islam. Muslims in America do not try to enforce genital mutilation or any part of the honor code. Muslims in India, starting at independence, already had gone through a kind of reformation where Islam had become very rationalistic and very feminist. So, you know, religions change because they want to live on good terms with their neighbors. Now, when that breaks down, and I think to some extent it's has broken down in the United States, though not as 
badly, perhaps, as one might think, then we have a problem. But so long as we, our project is to form fair terms of cooperation with mm-hmm. our neighbors and where everyone has to give and take, then I, I think we're going to be okay. Atheists may hate religion, but they too want to live on good terms with their neighbors. So they want a society that respects the freedom of religion and so on. I actually have a, a program at the law school that I established with a grant from one of the prizes that I won, which is called the Nussbaum Lunches, where people get together on a very divisive issue. It's students with two faculty who differ on the issue. Hmm. I sit together for an hour and a half because I, I found that people who had a different view from mine would not take my classes because we're polarized already. So I thought, what's a way of getting these diverse people into the same room? And so for an hour and a half over lunch, they would come, and we knew a little bit beforehand about what the range of positions in the room was. And I've always done these on topics such as gay rights issues, abortion issues, and so other people take other issues like intellectual property and, you know, all all kinds of things that I don't know very much about. But I find that it really works. On the bakery cases, you know, should bakers be able to exclude gay and lesbian people when they offer their wares. The the room actually figured out, even in that hour and a half, a compromised position that they thought they could all endorse. Mm. That's, you know, that's surprising. They don't always actually agree. So take the legalization of hard drugs, which is a hard issue, I think. And it's hard for me, and it was actually hard for the faculty member that I gave the thing with, because I think Although he's a so-called conservative, he's really a libertarian. And so he was more interested in the legalization of hard drugs than I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very hard for us, but we worked through it. And we tried to think, well, what, what are the set of solutions that's really on the table? And the students were very helpful in that setting. And everyone learned a lot because I didn't really know much about the data on hard drug use. Then, a couple of months ago, we gave one on abortion. Now then, the uh, wife of my faculty colleague, and she is herself uh, on the left, she said, this is never going to work. This is this is where the Nussbaum lunches break down. But I knew that there were a lot of students I knew in the room, and I shaped the discussion in the beginning by calling on a student of mine who was, I knew, a Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. but I knew she was also a particularly subtle and respectful person. And she began by saying, well, I used to be a part of these anti-abortion groups, but I felt that they were too narrow, that they were too hysterical, and I dropped away from that, and here's why. And so she went on. And then it, it really did open up the room to a much wider set of positions. There were Jews who said, in my religion, the fetus is just like water, so we have to be respected when, when we want abortion rights. And then there were some Catholics who did not drop away from the anti-abortion groups, but they listened. And they uh, they were surprised to hear mm. me say that Aquinas thought abortion was permissible up till the sixth month. You know, they learned stuff that they didn't know before. And later, that one most conservative in the room came up to me in the elevator and she said, I want to thank you. So I think the minute that people know that they're respected and that they're listened to, we have a, a, a little wedge in the door. Mm make progress. 
Might have something to do with what you're serving at those lunches. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe we need a cookbook. Yeah, I mean, I don't eat because I just can't eat when I'm talking. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> I think uh, usually I, I try to get it to be vegan food, but I don't, I don't know whether it always mm -hmm. is. That's what my money pays for because, of course, I donated money for this. But what, what can they spend money on? Everyone wants to come. So mm -hmm. I think that it's pretty good food. Yeah, I know you've spent a lot of time on ancient philosophy and Greek philosophy, uh, in particular Aristotle, I believe. But can you summarize the contributions of perhaps Plato and Aristotle to our thought currently? I mean, just how, how much do we owe these two men at this point? Okay, first of all, I want to say let's never, ever talk about ancient philosophy without saying ancient Greek and Roman. Right. Because first, when, whenever people say ancient philosophy, they really need ancient Greek and Roman, and they don't realize that they're excluding India and China and yeah. Africa. So I insist on, on that. But myself, the Romans are really, really important for me. So in the beginning of my career, it is indeed true that I worked particularly on Aristotle. But as time went on, I worked much more on the philosophers at the Hellenistic period. I just finished teaching a graduate seminar on Hellenistic ethics the Epicureans, the skeptics, and the mm -hmm. Stoics. Now, those, I think, make tremendous contributions. But when you say to our thought, I think you mean not all Americans, because Americans come from China and from India and from lots of different traditions. But you probably mean the history of modern Western European philosophy. But if, if yeah. you mean that, the Hellenistic philosophers actually make a bigger contribution than Plato and Aristotle. In the Middle Ages, Aristotle was taken up by the Catholic thinkers, and the whole scholastic tradition is based loosely and with a lot of changes on Aristotle. Plato, not so much, but he was certainly known. But then, starting around the, the Renaissance and the Reformation, people didn't know Greek. Even by the time Aquinas was writing, very few people knew Greek. Aquinas did not know Greek. Mm -hmm. He had to have a translator working with him. And that meant that they read the Romans a lot more than the Greeks. So Lucretius, Seneca, right. Cicero, they, they, they are the ones who shaped the history of early modern philosophy. When Descartes and Princess Elizabeth want to correspond about an ethical problem that she's facing, they choose Seneca's De Vita Beata to talk about. When Adam Smith is talking about global cooperation and global justice, he quotes from lots of people, but when he quotes from Aristotle, there's always a footnote. When he quotes from Cicero, it's just like in, in his own prose. Mm -hmm. He just incorporates huge chunks of Cicero in his own prose because it's like Shakespeare or the Bible. He expects the reader to understand where it comes from. So that was the dominant thing until basically mid-19th century when Hegel and then Nietzsche brought people back to much more of an interest in the Greeks. So by now, of course, they're, they're both. But And the Hellenistic philosophers have kind of fallen out of fashion in core curricula because people think that Romans are not very philosophical and I think a big mistake. But they also find it hard to teach them because the Greek Hellenistic philosophers are a series of fragments. And the fragments yeah. are fragments of very important works that were lost. I mean, Greek Stoicism invented propositional logic which we all use and rely on. They invented the philosophy of language, which we all use and rely on. But nobody teaches that because it's a series of fragments. So the ones that survive in whole works 
are Seneca and Cicero, but it's not easy to teach philosophy to undergraduates with those texts because the arguments are not very clearly disengaged from the rhetorical purpose of the work. So anyway, they're not as widely taught, which I think is a great pity. Mm. I think, of course, Lucretius is not only a great philosopher, but he's also a great poet, and he's appreciated more as a poet than as a philosopher, which, again, I think is a great pity. So I'm always campaigning for the Hellenistic philosophers. So such important things. The idea that human beings have dignity wherever they are in the world, and that we have duties to people outside our national borders, that's an idea of Stoicism. It did not exist mm -hmm. in Aristotle or in Plato. The, I, then subtle thinking about emotions. Aristotle says a few things about the emotions. Plato says less. But really, it was the Hellenistic philosophers that they made that a huge topic. They had elaborate treatises on the emotions. Again, some of that is just fragments, but we're lucky to have big fragments of, of Chrysippus's work on the emotions. And then Seneca, Cicero, they have very lengthy works of their own on, on emotions. So we know quite a lot about what they thought about that. And that's the basis for all mm. of my work on emotions. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Stoics. I, I, I thought, uh, we'll probably talk about this when we talk about emotions, but I thought you were not such a fan. In fact, I think you might have said as much a few minutes ago, not such a fan of their view on the emotions. But as you may or may not know, Stoicism is very much in vogue, especially outside the academy now. There's just a, this resurgence of interest in the Stoics, uh, you know, including people like Marcus Aurelius and obviously Seneca. And, and, there, and there are several popular authors who have written a lot about the Stoics of late. And people are applying the, the tenets of Stoicism such as they are, to their lives in, in very much the way I was asking you about a few minutes ago, mm -hmm. just a, a, not so much as a framework uh, through which to view our political projects, but much more a, a framework uh, through which to view one's personal collisions with the vicissitudes of life. So maybe just let, let's talk a bit about Stoicism specifically and yeah, maybe some of the okay. reservations you have about it. A fundamental distinction I want to introduce. Mm. What the Stoics said when they said what emotions are, what is their form, what is their shape, what is their origin, and then completely separate is the normative view they take about whether we should have them, whether we should get rid of them, and so forth. Right. So right. I actually think the first is they're deeply insightful and mostly correct, although they need to, that their view needs to be adjusted. But on the second, I think they're just dead, dead wrong. Not totally wrong, but quite wrong. And the people who write about Stoicism today don't make that distinction for the most part. A lot of the work that you're talking about really doesn't do serious work on Stoicism. So if your listeners want a really good book, there's a recent book by my former student, Nancy Sherman, a really excellent philosopher, which tells what she thinks the Stoics were really on about, what the normative tenets of Stoicism are. And what is the part that we can take seriously? And she criticizes a lot of this other work. So I would strongly re recommend that book to anyone who really wants to know. Correct. It's written for a general audience. But anyhow, no, what I'm interested in is what they think emotions are. The claim that they make, which at the time was not so surprising, but it, later, I guess people have come to doubt it, and now it's back in vogue again, 
is that emotions are not just mindless gusts of wind or impulses that flow through our bodies, but they're forms of thinking about the important goods outside ourselves that we don't control. Now, as I say, for a long time, all the way up through Adam Smith, that was the dominant view in the Western tradition of philosophy. Spinoza is nothing but modernized Stoicism. But then along came both Hume and William James, and they created a much more irrationalistic view of emotions such that they're mere impressions recognized by the way they feel without any cognitive content. And that view held sway in England and the United States, Hmm. while on the continent, Sartre, who stuck to the more original Stoic view, had a lot more to say about emotions. So for a long time, the philosophy of emotions was very arid. But then a group of psychologists noticed that it actually, the, the Humean view doesn't explain the behavior of animals or humans either. A great psychologist named Richard Lazarus, who said we really have to go back to the Greeks you now because we're now on the wrong track. And so that work and work by other later psychologists put us back on the right track. And then more recently, work by biologists who study the emotions of animals. The great primatologist Franz Duval has a new book on this called Mama's Last Hug. Mama is a chimpanzee. Anyway, um, he says by now, everyone agrees that emotions involve thought about the world. And the person he gives most credit to, and I think a very extraordinary person, is the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio. Mm -hmm. Damasio Mm -hmm. studied a patient who whose brain had been damaged. And he was damaged in a way that affected his ability to feel emotions. It harked back to an earlier case with damage in a similar part of the brain. But anyway, this patient not only felt no emotions, but he couldn't make up his mind about what to do. He scored very high on IQ tests. He could play chess and so on. But he couldn't tell what he was going to do next because nothing stood out as mattering more to him than anything else. And so from this, Damasio developed the view, which the Stoics already had, that emotions are responses to things to which we ascribe great value out there in the world. And they evolved. Well, of course, the Stoics didn't believe in evolution, but Damasio did. They evolved to help steer us in the world. So an animal needs to know what is the bad out there. Mm. And so fear informs the animal. Here's a big, bad thing. You better get out of there. And and that's the role that emotions play. They involve appraisals, and the appraisals of the external thing are what I would call eudaimonistic. That is, they're pertinent to our own well-being, and they guide us in the world. So So that's now the prevailing view in biology, and there are still some philosophers who cling to the Humean model. I teach a course called Emotions, Reason, and Law, and I've taught it for now about 15 years. When I started, there were people who, whom I could assign as modern Humeans. But by now, those people have qualified their views so much that really there's none that I would count as a, a real modern Humean. Because I mean, biology is something everyone has to pay attention to. And the biologists are saying with one accord, emotions involve thought. So that's where we are today. And the Stoics have you know, won the battle, as it were, mm. against the Humeans. Yeah, but back to the norms of Stoicism, which you it sounds like you distrust, at least with respect to certain emotions, uh, there's this idea that we, we shouldn't be guided 
by our emotions to the degree that we are by default. So you take an emotion like anger, you know, someone has said something that you find powerfully annoying, uh, and, and this really the recognition of this event out in the world which you can't control, you know, the, the small mouth noises made by one of your detractors, causes you to feel a surge of anger which seems to suggest some kind of behavioral imperative, right? If you're going to follow this gust of anger to its uh, logical conclusion, you, uh, you will say or do something which will further compound, uh, on, the, on the Stoics' account, uh, further compound your problem. And that the deeper problem is that you yourself are being blown around by events over which you have no control. And normatively, you should recognize how absurd this is and how what a waste of your energy and attention it is to be so captivated by the thoughts and 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 words of other people and you should you know seize some kind of sovereignty over your inner life here and simply let go of anger you should have woken up that morning realizing that you were going to confront a host of imbeciles throughout the day who are going to say things that were designed to provoke you, and you should be unprovocable. Um, what, what, what about that picture do you not like, if anything? Well, you'll soon see that anger is a special case for me, but let me just talk about the general issue. Mm-hmm. So what Stoics think is that we all should not ascribe any high importance or value to anything outside ourselves that we do not control. And they think, for example, you shouldn't really love your children. And if the child dies, you should think, in fact, this is a direct quote from Cicero, I was already aware that I had begotten a mortal. Hmm. Now, what I think is there are some things to which people ascribe great importance outside themselves about which the Stoics are right. For example, we probably shouldn't ascribe much importance to reputation or gossip and, and things like that. And a lot of the examples that the Stoics use are of that kind, because Roman society, people were getting very wrought up over, I mean, Seneca meditates at the end of each day. He got all wrought up because somebody, the doorman was rude to him. Mm-hmm. Somebody seated him at the wrong table and so on. But I think, you know, it's very important to love. And the Stoics don't make room for love. They, mm. they just don't. They think that we should have attachment only to our own rational being and that that can never be damaged. So, of course, we don't have to have fear in that connection or grief. And so there's no place, no place for fear, Hmm. no place for grief, and that we should care for one another in a rational way. But if one person dies, not an occasion for grief. The community can be based on a kind of rational goodwill and this is, you know, this is, I think, wrong. I think yeah. we, deep love always causes some problems in political life, for sure. It causes problems in anyone's life, but the, the right thing is not to get rid of it. So I don't, do not think that we should or could get rid of love and therefore not of fear, but we can calibrate them and think, when is this fear justified? Am I fearing too much or for the wrong reasons? All of those things. But now anger. Okay. So anger is usually defined in this tradition as not only involving the thought that you have been wronged by somebody, but the thought that it would be right to take some kind of retribution or retaliation against that person. So it includes the desire for either revenge or retaliation. 
as a part of what anger itself is. Mm-hmm. Now, what I say, and I, I, I came to this realization later, it was when I was working on my Locke lectures for Oxford in, that I gave in 2014. And so it's in my book, Anger and Forgiveness in 2016. I had not talked much about anger before that. I had talked mostly about grief and love and, and the ones that I particularly like. But anger, I just sort of it slipped by me and I included it in lists. But when I began to actually work on it and think about the damage done by retributive wishes, I came to the conclusion that this wish for payback, which is very influential in both personal life and political life, is not only counterproductive, but it's actually a form of kind of empty, magical thinking. People think, oh, my child has been killed. Well, if I make sure that this offender gets the death penalty, then that will pay back and then things will be even in the cosmos. The cosmic balance will be struck. And it doesn't do anything to assuage the grief. And it doesn't do anything to make a world in which fewer crimes would occur. So while I think punishment is often justified, I think the reason for which it's justified is never backward-looking retribution, which does no good and is empty, but rather it's always forward-looking. That can include reform of the offender. It can include deterrence of Mm. the offender, deterrence of other people. And it can also include expression of society's most important values. But that's all forward-looking. So there is a kind of anger that I sort of give a name to, because I think all of the ordinary words are unclear as to which type they're talking about, which I call it transition anger, an anger that faces forward and says, well, that was outrageous. Now, let's see what we can do about that. That should not happen again. And that kind, I think, is very, very important. And since we're on Martin Luther King's birthday today, I want to point out that he made that distinction. I only discovered that he made it later after I had kind of invented it myself. But he made exactly that distinction. He says there's one kind that's kind of retaliatory, backward looking, and it does no good. And it's he interestingly says it's not revolutionary. I think he's absolutely right. Because you can't have a revolution if you're just looking behind you. You have to look forward. And of course, his speeches include many injunctions to a kind of transition angle, because he points to the outrageous things that racism has done. But he then turns to what can we do about it? And we have to face the future, he always says, in a spirit of hope, faith, and love. And then he quickly says, I don't mean romantic love, and I don't mean you have to like the people, but I mean the kind of love that sees in that person a possibility of change. And that's the kind of love that he preached. So, you know, that's what I said in Anger and Forgiveness. And I say it again. So I think anger is is unusual in the sense that Mm -hmm. the Stoics are more right about that than they are about other things. But they don't, you know, they don't do it for the right reasons. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I hit upon a similar distinction in in Shades of Anger. You use the word in describing it. I, I think of a distinction between personal anger and what I would call moral outrage, you know, and the outrage is this transitional forward-looking response, which is obviously a close cousin of anger. It may, in fact, be you know, just anger in one of its modes, but it has as its object not retaliation or retribution, but stopping whatever ongoing harms can be stopped and making the world better. But it, it does have this divisive energy of 
recognizing in a very visceral way that certain things out in the world are unacceptable and shouldn't be tolerated. But it's the, the transitional part is in the mode that, that the intolerance of the unacceptable takes going forward, and whether that is a vengeful, backward-looking, uh, magical attempt to settle a score, or if it's actually a forward-looking attempt to just make the world a better place. There's some other emotion. You know, oh, go, go ahead. I want to say that there are a lot of people who do make the distinction, but they still like the retributive. Mm-hmm. If you look at the field of law, the justification of punishment, I would say the majority of people in the United States think that retribution is the primary justification for punishment. The deterrence people have been around ever since the British utilitarians. The right. utilitarians thought that deterrence was the only rational purpose of punishment. So people like Bentham and Beccaria, and then, of course, they argued that the death penalty makes no sense. But most people today, you know, both the lay public who love retribution and the legal thinkers still cling to retribution. I actually hadn't thought to talk about this, but this is, I just find this such an interesting question. How do you think about cases of punishment when you know, someone has committed a crime and committed real harm, but it's obvious from the nature of the case that this is not a person who is ever going to create such harm again. So that you can't tell yourself the story that this person belongs in prison because of all the harm they may, may yet do other people. You know, it's, it's crimes of passion fall in here, but I thought of a case the other day which is similar, which you think of and actually, this goes to, to the question of moral luck, which I, I wanted to, to speak with you about. You know, many of us, this is a point that Thomas Nagel has made and perhaps others have made as well, that, you know, so much of, of acting for the good or the bad in the world comes down to luck. You know, many of us have gotten away with things that would have been you know, astounding and life-deranging examples of negligence had we not gotten away with them. So you, we've all driven a car. Uh, having had too much to drink, uh, there are many people out there driving a car while looking at their phones when they shouldn't or adjusting their stereos uh, at dangerous moments. And some number of people don't get away with this, right? So somebody's going to be texting on their phone today behind the wheel and they're going to run over somebody's child. And obviously that, that's a, going to be a terrible outcome for the child and the child's family, but it's also going to be a terrible outcome for the quite ordinary person who did something stupid for half a second and his or her life will never be the same as a result. And we, we currently punish such people. I mean, people do go to prison for having been texting while driving and being unlucky enough to kill somebody. But the truth is, we all know that what it's like to be that person because virtually all of us have been that person and merely been lucky enough not to suffer any consequences. So I guess, I guess it's a two-part question. How do you think about punishment in cases like that when it's obvious that the, in the case of the, the person who is texting while driving, that person's already suffering the punishment of the damned because they killed someone's child when they were just looking at their phone and they're, you know, these are, let's stipulate, completely ordinary, well-intentioned people who just did something stupid. You know, this person's life is never going to be the same. Now we're going to put them in prison presumably just to make an example of them and to deter, hopefully deter other people from texting while driving. 
but it it strikes me as a as a morally you know, questionable or at least interesting case because we know this person is not this, this is the last person who's going to be texting while driving ever again and we know their their life has already been ruined by what has occurred so i guess the so the question is how do you think about cases like that and then lo- more largely how do you think about the moral significance of luck okay well that's a big question but yep. about the <clears throat> deterrent the purpose of deterrence is more often what's called general deterrence than specific deterrence i mean sure you do want to deter this particular offender from committing the same type of crime again but Sometimes you don't need to do that. I, I'm not as confident as you are that these very careless people who don't care about other people's lives are actually going to be deterred by the, the bad consequences mm-hmm. that, that their, their conduct creates. But uh, anyway, maybe sometimes that's the case. But most often what we want to do is to make a statement to society. Now, of course, if we could prevent the bad behavior in some other way, ex ante, not by having the accident happen first and then punishing somebody, but simply, I mean, first of all, by announcing a very heavy punishment, that can deter a lot of people. But also, there are times when you can actually deter by a kind of engineering feat, like the Mothers for Drunk Against Drunk Driving mm-hmm. recommended that cars be have a device. If people had ever been charged with driving drunk, they have this device inserted that you couldn't start it without blowing into a, a breathalyzer. Mm-hmm. Well, that is now a common use. And I actually think it should be in universal use, even for people who don't drink, because then there would be no more drunk driving and we wouldn't have to think about the punishment of the person. But so where you can do that and, and make the cars safer and so, automatic braking devices in cars are, are like that. Because like, if I'm about to run over a child, my car won't let me, it will, Put the, the brake will slam on, and I'll see a red light that says brake because any time a human being is running across your path. So any time we can do that, that's great. But where we can't do that, where it does depend on human judgment to some extent, I think general deterrence is very, very important. Let me talk about one area that I've worked on quite a lot, which is sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Sexual harassment, you know, used to be everywhere. When I was in graduate school, it was every woman who was in graduate school had been sexually harassed. I've written about my own sexual harassment, but so too have many others. The fact was that it was all around. Now, that doesn't mean that all men engaged in it. In fact, I think most of the men who taught me thought it was a very bad thing, but they didn't think that they had any power to say anything about it. So when my thesis advisor, who harassed all his female students, was reported by one of those students, And I have to say it wasn't me and it should have been me, but it was somebody else. The chair of the department, who was a very, very good man, just didn't know what to do about it because there was no rule Mm. and there was no policy, nothing that deterred people generally. So he then went to the offender and says, you know, so-and-so has said that you harassed her. Well, he didn't even use that word because the term didn't exist, Mm. that you roped her at this party. And uh, of course, what happened is that was taken to be a personal smear against that faculty member. And what he did was say to that woman, I'm not going to work with you anymore. So the person who was punished was the one who blew the whistle. So we need rules that apply to everyone that says this conduct is wrong. And that means that, first of all, I think a lot of men were just simply deterred from doing it. 
I haven't heard of sexual harassment in my department for quite a long time. When a situation does arise where there's a sexual relationship between a faculty member and a graduate student, it comes to light right away. The person goes to the chair and we devise a situation where that person isn't supervising the other person ever again. So things have changed and they've changed because of general deterrence. And I don't think men ever regretted the harassment that they did. The the offenders were, were pretty thick skinned. But the important thing is that everyone is on notice from young childhood on up that this is just bad behavior. And it's not bad in the way that, oh, this is personal. We can't talk about it. But it's bad for the whole academic community, the whole workplace community, and so on. So general deterrence is very, very important, I think. Yeah. The adjacent issue or the the uh, more fundamental issue of, of moral oh, yeah. luck. And uh, yeah. and I guess, so, I guess the mor- there's moral luck, but there's also just the moral significance of luck, which goes to this larger issue that you raised at the beginning, just how we respond to human vulnerability. Yeah. The, the disparities in luck we see before us in the world are every every form of inequality at some level can be ascribed to the differences in the way luck is apportioned across the globe and in any community. How do you think about the moral significance of these differences? Well, okay, what I don't work on the the Nagel-type case so much, Mm. although I think it's very interesting. What I have worked on is one step back from that. When we're thinking about what to include in our lives, how do we think about the fact that some things we might choose to devote ourselves to are exceedingly vulnerable to luck and others are not. That is, Mm. if you choose to have a child, you know, right away, there is, as Medea says to Jason, there's a hole through which a wound may be struck, you know, and should we have children knowing that that love makes us so incredibly vulnerable? Should we engage ourselves in politics? The uh, ancient Greek and Roman thinkers had a thing called the choice of lives, where they imagined people, as it were, at a job fair, deciding, well, if I'm a political person, boy, not only if my country is conquered in war, will I lose my citizenship, et cetera, but even in a much lesser way, if I do badly in the next election, I'll do very badly. And of course, Cicero, this was terribly real for Cicero Mm. because he was also a politician and he lost. He was on the side that lost in the Roman civil wars and he was assassinated by the other side. But he defended making politics a part of your life. He talked endlessly about how important it was. And his best friend Atticus was an Epicurean who thought, no, you should lead a retiring life and devote yourself to your own pursuits, your personal friendships and to learning and writing and so forth. And Atticus survived the civil wars and died of stomach cancer at the age of, I think, 80. So, you know, that's a very different kind of life from Cicero's. I think that that's the kind of debate that interests me. And of Mm. course, there are some things where we can't tell ahead how much vulnerability there is. Now, but then you suggest yet a further question, which is when things go wrong, Is it really luck in the sense of, oh, the cosmos did this, not me? Usually not. Usually human agency is all mixed up with it. So if you take the Greek tragedies, they're usually about wars and they're about women getting raped in war and men getting killed in war. 
And of course, that's not luck in the sense of, oh, the universe did that, not us. People did it. And Hmm. these plays were part of political deliberation about making wars, about the just conduct in wars. Euripides' Trojan Women, which we actually performed at our law school when we had a conference on war in law and literature, Hmm. and I played the role of the aged queen, Hecuba, where everyone Mm -hmm. gets killed. Anyway, that play was done right after the Athenians had killed all the men in a rebellious colony called Milos and had raped and enslaved the women and children. So Euripides is commenting very negatively on the pain that their deliberate actions have created. And so we, you know, that makes us have to think if we ever think that there might be a just war in self-defense or so on, we would still not want to include in that the right to rape the women of the defeated <laughs> and so forth. So uh, anyway, that's the kind that interests me because we have to think, if it looks like luck, is it really? Let's imagine an earthquake strikes in India and a lot of people are killed. Well, they're not killed just by nature. They're killed in, in the middle of that by inadequate housing, Mm. flimsy housing, the lack of the enforcement of housing codes that exist, and so on and so on. The similar earthquake in San Francisco does not cause the same damage because of different political arrangements. So this comes to your question about inequality. Very often, people are vulnerable to what's called luck because of political inequality. They get more diseases, they're vulnerable to more diseases. And then, of course, when they do get the diseases, they don't get very good health care. And there might be some cases where a person gets all the health care and still dies. I think that was true of my daughter who died in 2019. But, you know, Mm -hmm. they did what they could and they just didn't know exactly what the problem was and they figured it out only on the autopsy. But plenty of people in her situation would not have gotten that far. They would have died because of inadequate health care. So yes, then we have to think how what we call luck is a way of washing our dirty hands from inequality that we've created. Yeah, no, I, I guess what, what I'm calling luck subsumes all of that, at least in every present instance. I mean, no, no one has decided to be born in India, and so that you know all of the the disparities in in the quality of engineering and infrastructure between India and the United States. Are you know the, the, those who inherit those inequalities are it, it is a matter of luck, but of course there's something we can do about all that, and it's how we respond to those inequalities and whether we feel some kind of moral imperative to cancel these disparities in luck. I mean that that goes to our ethics and our politics, and yeah. and I think you and I would agree about all of that. I just wanted you you mentioned your daughter died in in 2019. I I don't know that you if you want to talk about that at all. I if there's any insight you've gleaned from that that's relevant to our conversation so far, I'm I'm wondering uh, if you want to include it here because it's it's not the way things should be. Obviously, it, it has has been observed uh, many times before, and it's a it has to be an extraordinary and and shattering experience. So I'm, I'm wondering what did that do anything to your a view of the, the kinds of topics we've been discussing? Or is there any relevance of philosophy and your views on on emotions and how you've dealt with the, the aftermath of that? Well, I'll tell you, someday, and I'm still too close to it now, mm-hmm. I want to write a book about the relationship between Greek tragedy 
and a real tragedy. I mm. teach a course on how different philosophers see the ethical significance of Greek tragedy, kind of starts with Plato and ends with Bernard Williams. And so I want to use that material and then go back and forth between that and my own experience of my daughter's illness and her death. And, and that I'm, I've been keeping a journal and, uh, you know, it's very voluminous now. So I'll have to figure out what parts of it I would actually use. But that's a way off because I have to have a little more distance. I think mm. I'm beginning to get there. But what I've been doing in the meantime, my daughter was a lawyer for animal rights. And we had co-authored four papers on the subject of the rights of dolphins and whales and, and where she supplied the law and I supplied the philosophy. She worked for an NGO called Friends of Animals. And she already knew that I was planning to take this material and then other ideas of mine and write a whole book about the capabilities approach and, and animal rights. And she had read drafts of a couple of chapters. But when she died, that became an overwhelming imperative for me mm. because I felt her ideas and she was so deeply committed to these animals. And I came into that field, really, I learned from her. I didn't write about that before I knew what she was up to. And I learned so much from her. So I thought, well, she's gone, but I can at least make her commitments live on and hopefully do some good in the world that she would have wanted to have done. So that's the new book. And, yeah. you know, I really, really meant that. And uh, I want to do good with that book. And yeah, well, a lot of ideas are in it. Just to uh, tell our listeners, that book is Justice for Animals. And, um, yeah, perhaps we can close on that topic. I guess we, we can also talk about human flourishing as well. but. How do you think about human and animal flourishing? You you, you did mention the uh, concept of eudaimonia at one point, and uh, you've also used this phrase, the capabilities approach. How do you, how do you think about this question of of the well-being of conscious creatures? And I think you and I probably agree that consciousness or sentience, I think sometimes you use the term, is the bright line between you know those systems we can we can and should care about, and the clockwork that's happening in the dark uh, that isn't the appropriate focus of of moral concern. Well, of course, there are a lot of people who do great work on animals and animal welfare and animal rights, and all credit to them. Where I thought I could come into this debate is that people are using philosophical and theoretical approaches in crafting their practical and legal strategies. And in my view, they're not the best ones. So, for example, there's one approach that's very prominent in U.S. courts, which I call the so like us approach. It's used by the um, non-human rights project, which says, well, there are a few animals who are very like human beings, and we should carve out a special place for those, in particular great apes and elephants, in law and give them special rights and call them persons. Now, that, first of all, it just leaves out all the other animals who are suffering terribly. But it also just seemed to me the wrong reason to give a benefit to an animal because of us, because they happen to be like us. Well, it's not even biologically correct, actually, because there are a lot of animals who have abilities we don't have. And we have a harder time making peace than the apes. We can't navigate by magnetic fields like the birds. So it's just biologically a mess, but, but particularly we should do things because of who they are, not because of us. Then there are the utilitarians. Now, of course, I 
have great, great, great respect for them. Peter Singer is a leader and a wonderful radical leader in the movement for animal rights. But they're stuck with a very narrow view of both human beings and animals, namely that pain is the one big bad thing and that pleasure or satisfaction of preferences is the one big good thing. Now, to me, that's too flat because Mm. what human beings need is a lot of different stuff and animals too. They might get by with no pain in a zoo of a humane sort, but what they need is a lot of big space to move around in if they're elephants. They need a group of their own species to associate with, which in the case of dolphins will be 35 to 40 dolphins. Elephants, a large matriarchal group with wandering males that meet up with them on occasion. And and so this is just left out. And I think it gives a much narrower view of what we ought to do. Singer might think he could squeeze that all into the space of pain, but I, I just think it doesn't work. There are other bads in life than than pain. There's the absence of company. And if you haven't had the company when you were born in a zoo, you don't, you don't feel pain because you don't have it, but you still miss it. You lack it. And so anyway, I thought the capabilities approach does much better because it says a minimum of justice for both a human creature and another kind of animal creature is to get up to a threshold level on some special spaces or opportunities for the choice of actions, which that's what capabilities are, that are valuable in that kind of life. So for human beings, it's one thing. For a dolphin, it will be different. But I think they kind of overlap in a lot of areas. So all need protection for health, for bodily integrity, for the opportunity to choose your path in life, for affiliations of specific kinds with other species members and with different species too. So anyway, I think for each species of animal, there should be a set of goals, the capabilities that we should protect for them. And then for the humans, we do the same thing. So it's really just mapping the human approach onto the different forms of life that animals have. And of course, we don't know enough to do it now, but we have to call on the scientists who often have lived years and years with a particular type of animal. Barbara Smuts has lived with baboons for three, four years. So she knows the baboon form of life, and she and others like her could make the list for baboons. There are elephant scientists who have already made such a list for elephants. And so we we go on for each species. Mm. And then we try to think, what do we have to do to deliver that? Now, of course, it's different with different kinds of animals. Where you dig in, I mean, with companion animals, we can expect local laws, city laws, state laws to do most of the work with wild animals. If they're confined to a nation, of course, the nation's laws can do a lot of that work. But a lot of them, like whales, are crossing borders all the time. So then we have to call on what are by now the really deficient and underdeveloped resources of international law. So I talk about each of those in the book. Yes, this capabilities approach, it's different from the narrow analogy to similarity to humanness, but it still suggests a similar hierarchy of moral concern where a cricket is less worthy of our concern than a whale or an elephant or a... a... No, no, no. Not at all. It doesn't? It is absolutely non-hierarchical. 
It just says each one gets what that one needs. But do, there's no better or worse but, in it. But just, I mean, intuitively, I mean, I, I think of this as kind of the the windshield test of you know, you're, you're driving home and a bug hits your windshield. You feel a certain way about that, and perhaps not all that much. But if you run over a squirrel, you feel more. If you run over somebody's dog, you feel more. If you run over a child, obviously you feel as much as you could possibly feel about the wrongness of, of that. Are you suggesting that our moral concern shouldn't scale with the complexity of life and the, and the, and the broadness of, of range of experience we attribute to the animal and or organism or system Absolutely in question? Not. Absolutely not. Well, first of all, we don't even think well when we're saying these things. No one even understands how complicated the life of each of these creatures is. Every creature has, if it is still living in the world, it has evolved to survive in its own evolutionary niche, and it has the abilities and forms of behavior that it needs for its own form of life. And there is no hierarchy here. Of course, people think hierarchically. That's why the Non-Human Rights Project thinks they have to think hierarchically in order to persuade judges. But if we start with a, an empty and defective approach, then it's going to continue to produce defective results. No, and now I do think that there's a lower boundary. I think a creature has to be sentient, which is to say capable of feeling pain, capable, but that includes much more. It includes a subjective point of view on the world. That I think is necessary for being a subject of justice rather than some other type of environmental concern. We should be concerned for plants, but I don't think you can do injustice to a plant because it's just not the sort of thing that's striving. I talk in the book about what justice means, and I think justice, injustice, is wrongful thwarting of a sentient mm. being's striving. But, so if you but what if we knew, but Martha, what if we knew that crickets were sentient in the sense that there, there is well, something okay. that it's like so to be I a cricket? We don't. We know that they're not. So that's one thing. Well, Insects are not sentient. But well, wait, 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 wait. Then, then what do you mean? Uh, I'm, I'm using sentience as, as a synonym for conscious. But it is sentience is something that scientists can find through experiment. There are yeah. many, ex I've read tons of science for this book. It's a scientific question. It's not a, an ethical or imaginative question. Fish have now been decisively shown to be sentient. In, there are a couple of insects, bees in particular, about which there's some doubt. But most scientists think they're not sentient. But for the vast majority of insects, they agree totally oh. that they're not sentient. And and wait a minute. There now in other animals, cephalopods have now been shown to be highly sentient and highly in, in, in fact highly complicated and, and nuanced sentience. The octopus, I'm sure you all know, you know about the octopus teacher, but mm. scientists who work with octopi and squids know that they're sentient. There's doubt about crustaceans. There's the jury is still out on that. And then there are some creatures, even in the well, in the fish world. I'm talking about what are called teleost or bony fish. When I say everyone agrees that they're sentient. Interestingly, cartilaginous fish, that is sharks, it's not clear because they will even, for example, eat parts of their own body, which indicates that they actually don't feel pain. So anyway, we have to learn from science, and we can move one creature to this or that side of mm. the boundary line. But I think the boundary line is the right line. 
Now, then there's, of course, always in thinking about life and death, there are exceptions, I think, for justified killing and self-defense. We can, I think, justifiably, even if insects were sentient, we might be justified in killing them as threats to the lives of humans and other animals. But it's always much better to use birth control rather than killing. So, for example, with rats, people have realized now that to control rat populations in cities, sterilization is much more effective. And it also prevents things that, I don't know if you saw this horrible story that there was an eagle that was captured and it was very ill. And what had happened was that it had eaten a rat that had been poisoned by human poison Mm. and it had gotten affected by the same poison and it eventually couldn't be saved. So, you know, poison is poison and it, it goes all over the ecosystem. So I think we should use sterilization for killing when it is justified in self, rather than killing when it's justified in forms of self-defense. Well, I should just say that that I don't think the boundary of sentience, which is to say the the question of when the lights come on for conscious creatures, is as worked out as you suggest. And we might find that at a certain point we have good reason to believe that a disconcertingly large population of tiny animals like crickets probably feel pain and are probably sentient, which is to say that there's there's something that is like to be that sort of creature. And if that's the only consideration, if we're not going to value the further details of what they could possibly be sentient of, right, how how might the inner life of a cricket be different and, you know, deeply impoverished compared to the inner life of a cow or a pig or a, a whale? pragmatically speaking, will be paralyzed by not being able to acknowledge that difference. And it's very hard not to go through the world and and be a farmer and be a driver of cars and, and all the rest and not kill a very large number of insects. And if we've viewed all of those killings as a holocaust, just based on the fact that we now have good reason to believe that that insects or or some class of insects are sentient, you know, again, we'll be we'll suffer some kind of moral paralysis. And so it will be with, we can leave AI aside, but um, you know, it, it's totally possible that we're stumbling into a world where we will have good reason to believe that we are at risk of building conscious machines, uh, which poses its own ethical problems. But I think that the crucial matter is, is what these machines could possibly be conscious of. And insofar as they begin to have a conscious life that is analogous to our own or, or analogous to any other creature that, is, that has a, you know, a very wide range of pleasures and pains and, and hopes and fears, well, then, yes, then, then it becomes a concern whether we ever create such machines. And you know, we might rule that out in advance as a terrible thing to do if we run the risk of creating a hell and populating it with artificial souls, if we could do such a thing. So back to my central concern here is that if it's just a matter of the lights being on or not, we could find ourselves with a a moral theory that suggests no obvious remedy, right? We could because it's there's nowhere written that the boundary of sentience is drawn in a place that is convenient for our getting through our lives without creating moral horror for ourselves. Well, believe me, my recommendations are not convenient. They're very tough and they say a lot 
about both how we should treat companion animals and how we should treat so-called wild animals Mm. that will not be comfortable for anyone who reads that book. Even people who think they love their companion dog or cat, I make a lot of recommendations that will not be comfortable at all. But look, I'm in the world of science. I believe that the scientists are doing the work that is pertinent to this issue. Well, I agree. And, you know, I believe in science. And I believe that they have got very strong arguments for the conclusions they come to. And that, look, the, the way we conclude that a creature is sentient, by which I mean just, as I say, subjective awareness. I don't mean what's called metacognition. In other words, hmm. awareness that you have beliefs. That, that to me, is a side issue. Yeah. A lot of animals do have that because any animal that has to deceive other animals has to have that. But it plays a much smaller role in both human lives and animal lives than, uh, and animal lives than, than people think. I'm just talking about, as you say, the lights being on. There's someone at home in there. There are ways that we argue about this. We have to ask, first of all, about neuroanatomy. Now, sometimes for a certain period of time, scientists get that wrong. Like for a long time, scientists thought birds couldn't be sentient because they couldn't see how a creature without a neocortex could be sentient. Mm-hmm. But then when they actually looked at the neuroanatomy of birds, they realized that by convergent evolution, they came at the same abilities through different anatomical structures. And so now no one would dispute that birds are sentient. And I think people know enough about insects that they know that most of them, now these, as I say, there's some dispute, are not sentient. So we shouldn't think about a possibility that's been ruled out by good arguments. Let's deal with the world that we're living in. It's complicated enough and it demands a lot of us. Uh, so I, you know, I think um, it would be interesting to speculate. But I think what you're really saying is, that the only way to save ourselves from being in some horrible swamp is to start ranking and ordering the creatures. And to me, that's just a non-starter. How would we rank them? How would we say, oh, this creature would be better if it had X? No, it has the abilities that it needs to live the life that it actually lives. Humans. Well, no, it just brings me back to the kinds of we we do whether we do this consciously or not. We do it implicitly when we when we respond or don't respond to an event as though it were some kind of tragedy or or atrocity. So if I, you know, if you if you knew that a friend of yours had killed a spider in the house when he could have taken the spider out, uh, you know, with a glass and, and and set it free outside, you know, you you might disapprove of that behavior on your view, but I would imagine you wouldn't view your friend as a a moral monster akin to someone who had killed a dog just for the hell of it, or kill the person just for the hell of it. To give an example of a creature who is sentient, and then we could talk about that. Right. Okay. Well, then, then I guess I'm a mouse, right? But I, I, I just, I just have to say, listen. I mean, I'm, I have a PhD in neuroscience. I'm, I, I just have to say that the neurobiological implications of differences between crickets and mice have not been fully worked out with respect to the question of where consciousness arises in this world. It just, well, it just hasn't you know, happened. So. If, 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 they, if the discourse of science on those particular creatures changes, then a creature can move from one side yeah, to the other no of the line. But I think we need two things. We need neuroanatomy and then inference to the best explanation. That yeah. is, we need some behavior that could not be explained without this uh, attributing this uh, ability. 
And that's what Victoria Braithwaite and others have done with fish in a very convincing fashion. And I talk a lot about her book, Do Fish Feel Pain, in order to show the kind of study that would be necessary. You know, anyway, we, we agree about the methodology there. So just give me, so you, your friend has set a trap for mice in his basement, despite your disapproval. And he tells you that he's killed at least four of them. And he obviously did this on purpose because he set the traps and he's happy to have four fewer mice in his house. I have to think, while you may disapprove of that, you're going to feel differently about him than if he had told you that he found some homeless people living in his basement, and rather than call the police, he decided to kill them with a hammer uh, and throw them outside. And it's not the same order oh, of moral ordinary infraction. Beliefs, ordinary beliefs have nothing to do with this topic. When we see such vast corruption, and the corruption is bought into by a vast industry, the factory farming industry, that manufactures attitudes that we ought to take to mm-hmm. animals and has acquired such great power in our political process that you can't even get Senate confirmation without kowtowing to them, then I think we should not take ordinary beliefs on this topic seriously at all. We could all go back in time and find ordinary beliefs about black people and women that were heinous. And I hope that sooner or later, we will have better beliefs about animals. Or to this point, we can find Descartes vivisecting his neighbor's dog or whoever's dog it was. Yes. So I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, But I'm, I'm talking about your beliefs. The one difference that I would find is that perhaps this person had not been exposed to all the arguments. After all, that's one of the things that law should do. It should educate and inform. And just as I would feel differently about my thesis advisor, who was not aware of rules against sexual harassment, although I I think a sensitive person in that era should probably have been a little more awake than that, that guy was. So too, I might think that this guy who killed a mouse, well, as I say, there's a self-defense exception, but I don't believe that that friend would be able to convince me that it was absolutely necessary to kill the mouse as opposed to supporting projects of mouse sterilization. You know, you put out a a kind of chemical that sterilizes them, then that's going to be much more effective in the long run. Mm. So anyway, I would think that person might be have a little, I might have a little mercy on such a person. They did the bad thing, but they they may have excusable ignorance of some sort. Whereas with homeless people right now, I think by now, maybe not before, uh, no one has any such excuse. But that's about all. Hmm. Mice are very complicated and very interesting creatures. They're very, well, every creature that has evolved and survived is a, is an interesting creature. But mice, you know, I'm gonna, I, 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 I just, I can't, I want to put this, this thought experiment to you one more time because I, this will be diagnostic as to whether you and I view this as differently as we appear to. If you're driving home in your car that uh, will not miraculously break for pedestrians and you run over a squirrel or a mouse or a cat, I have to think that though that will bother you, it will not bother you as much as if you ran over a person. And I'm wondering what you think of that difference, or if, if you actually deny whether there is a difference there that, that somehow implies a hierarchy. Well, first of all, my beliefs are not perfect. My emotional responses were created in a bad world. Mm. Some of my reactions are bad. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is that 
cat or that, well, let's not take cats because there are lots of laws that we've made for the benefit of cats. But let's say that that mouse that you might run over or that squirrel is in a community that has done absolutely nothing to protect the lives of those creatures from human accidents. So, you know, the humans can't make law all on their own. And how, how can they fail to have such accidents when the roads are not made such and the laws are not made such that those creatures are protected? I think it's very difficult. In fact, of course, we know that we're brought up to approve of the killings of such animals in medical research and other sorts of things. And mice in particular are thought to be grist for the mill of scientific progress. Mm. I talk about that a lot in the book. But anyway, you know, so I, I would but think... The, 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 but the irony, Martha, here is that you sound to my ear a little bit like Cicero here, reasoning that uh, you, you shouldn't love anybody because his philosophy somehow requires it. I, I just... No, again, he didn't say that. He didn't. Cicero was not a Stoic. He did not say that. Did you, were you referring to somebody else? Well, who, who was it who, who said that? He, he quoted he, in describing the views of oh, the Greek Stoic. sorry. Okay, yes. He quoted yeah, yeah. the Stoic text to say that. Great. So okay. I said I was quoting it from Cicero, well, not because he said it, but because it. he quoted okay. it. Thank you for the clarification. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it, it sounds, so just, there's a similar level of counterintuitive detachment from the ordinary emotional response, which I think you would have, and uh, but I feel is philosophically justified, but it is justified by recourse to some implicit hierarchy here, which takes as its object the different life ex experiences and capacities and capabilities of the different species in question. I mean, when, when if I run over a squirrel, I have some intuitive sense, which I don't think is totally erroneous, of just how wide the horizons are for a squirrel and what it doesn't include. And it doesn't include uh, hoping to live long enough to see its children graduate from high school, right? It's just that there's a web of moral connections and aspiration and happiness and suffering that it doesn't participate in by virtue of being a squirrel. And the, yet the human I could have run over does. And the people who care about that human, I, I suspect, exist. Whereas the friends and family of the squirrel are probably not thinking, not capable of thinking all that much about that individual squirrel. Well, actually, it's not true. There are, there are many studies of grief in animals. But... Yeah, I mean, I would price that in. I mean, by comparison with a person and a, and a community yeah, I mean, of people, I would say. You're just talking about how we feel. And I've already said we feel wrong the wrong ways. We've been brought up in a speciesist society, and we feel that we're superior. Now, of course, the connections you're talking about with grandchildren and so on, those uh, exist in human life because they're an important part of human life. But they would not be important for a squirrel. A squirrel is not worse off because the squirrel doesn't do that. A squirrel has exactly what it needs. Let me give you a case. Mm -hmm. So when people live with a dog, dogs can become so deep a part of somebody's life that they will feel just as deep grief when their dog dies, which of course, given the lifespan, it's very likely to do before the human being does. And yet a dog neurologically and in terms of behavior is just as, well, probably less complex in your terms mm -hmm. than a squirrel. Rodents are very, very intelligent, complicated creatures, and they're capable of much more meta thought, probably, because they have to survive by locating their nuts where the other squirrels won't find them. And so 
Dogs have some metacognition, but perhaps not as much. But it's the human hierarchy that's put dogs so way above squirrels, whereas the biological hierarchy just says, well, squirrels have what they need, dogs have what they need, and if we're going to talk about complexity, they're very similar. But humans have have come to understand the value of a dog because they live with a dog and they know what dogs are and how capable they are of love. Of George Pitcher's wonderful book, which I talk about, The Dogs Who Came to Stay, says very plausibly that dogs are more capable than most humans of unconditional love. Mm. That is love that's not conditional on social status or reputation, et cetera, et cetera. And he was seeing a psychoanalyst at that time for not being able to show and experience that kind of love. And then eventually the psychoanalyst said, well, you know, those dogs have taught you much more than I did, and you you don't really need me anymore. So I think we would all recognize that, sympathize with that. And the reason we don't have that with squirrels is that most of us don't actually live with squirrels. And it's very hard to do that, of course, because I think it would be somewhat abusive to keep a squirrel in a house as a house pet. But anyway, that's not a that's not a reason. That's just a prejudice. Right. Okay. Well, I I I, uh, I have to demur a little bit on on the comparison of dogs and squirrels in terms of their complexity and their their capabilities. So I, I think dogs, quite famously, are are far more aware of human emotion and the implications of human attention than even chimpanzees seem to be able to be. So it's. It's evolved to be codependent yes, exactly, humans. Yeah. They so have then, a particular ability to lead their own particular life. The squirrel right. does not. The squirrel yeah. has not been carefully sort of curated to be right. codependent. But I, I think I think it's just a separate issue. That, that you're talking about the dog's effect on the person, which I, I would agree can be profound. But the question is just how important uh, an object of moral concern is the dog for the dog's sake, and and just how bad is it if a dog gets killed unnecessarily compared to a person or compared to a squirrel? And I would put the dog, you know, apart from the the value of any dog can might have for the people who who are in its life, the the horizons of of a dog's world are more squirrel-like than they are human-like, and so I would I would I perhaps take the your lead there and say that yes that dogs are more like squirrels than we than we admit and it's really our just our love for dogs and our bias toward dogs given our practices around dogs that have led us to believe that squirrels are in a different universe from dogs if someone runs over a dog with their car it's not going to ruin their life presumably i was making a different point it was that we live intimately with dogs yeah. so we come to know what they're capable of we do right. not live intimately with squirrels and so we are very ignorant of what they're capable of. Yeah. But if we knew more and we read the science, we would see that they're capable of as, as many interesting things as the dog. Not the particular relational things that dogs are particularly right. evolved do, but other things that make them very, very interesting and very intelligent. So anyway, I mean, this ranking of intelligence, I think is really pretty dumb because what's important is what's inside the animal's own life. How good is it at solving the problems in internal to its own life? Okay, and you're you're in a, most, the Titanic is sinking, and we have a lifeboat, the, the proverbial lifeboat problem, and a, and a, a lifeboat is full, but one of its passengers is a dog. 
And uh, now the question is, do we make room on this lifeboat for another person or do we keep the dog? Uh, I think most people would say you have to make room for a person over a dog. And of that, course they would. But, most people have these prejudices. I've okay, already yeah, said that. Yeah, but so you're, so you're saying that there's no, there's no philosophical, we have no philosophical ground to stand on to justify that preference. That's just mere That's species preference and, and prejudice. That is my view. Yeah, okay. It's not going to be the view of most people. But then, yeah. you know, most people have been wrong about many things before. And, uh, and so I try to defend my views. Christine Korsgaard does the same thing. And I think her arguments are extremely elegant and, and valuable to the same effect. That, 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 that all value is internal to a form of life. The trans species ranking doesn't make any sense philosophically. So she and I are in perfect agreement hmm. about that, although we disagree about some other things. You know, of course, there will be disagreement. I mean, I wouldn't write a book if I thought everyone would agree with it. And I'm waiting to hear people's arguments and so forth. But I do think, by the way, that lifeboat cases usually make for not the best philosophy. We need to have a much longer and deeper search yeah. through our yeah. opinions and talk about which ones will stand the test of argument and so forth. Because I, I don't philosophize from ordinary intuitions. I think they're all a mess. Yeah. Well, on the point of lifeboat cases not making for great philosophy, I, I would agree because the, these are, by definition, conditions in extremis. I mean, you're talking about situations of moral emergency where that, that can't be mapped onto ordinary life very well. I, right. Yeah. Right. Of course, Bernard Williams thought that if you even asked, so he, his case was the one where you have your wife and a stranger and only one can mm -hmm. stay on the lifeboat. And he said, if you even have to think about it, then there's something wrong with you. No, but I think he's just wrong about that. <clears throat> he had a, a kind of extreme romantic view of life mm -hmm. that, to my mind, was just didn't stand the test of rational argument. I love Bernard Williams as a philosopher. He was one of my greatest influences. But part of the influence of, of a teacher is to you know generate counterarguments. Is to be wrong. But he was right about something. But I mean, to to make none think. Do I really believe that? No. Yeah. Here's I counter argument. And uh, the best, I think, teacher student relationships are like that. Mm. And my other most important, well, I won't say teacher because he didn't officially teach me, but he was a senior colleague when I was a junior colleague was John Rawls. And yeah. I agree with a lot of what he did, but quite a lot I don't agree with. And Frontiers of Justice was all about my differences from Rawls, but the, the things that I, I think are right are, are also very substantial. Okay, so finally, Martha, I just wanted to ask you about a phrase that appears in your work, uh, the fragility of goodness. Well, what do you mean by that? Okay, well, goodness, I think, was probably not quite the right choice because it was misunderstood. I was taken to be talking about moral goodness of character. Mm -hmm. And although that's one thing that maybe I talk about occasionally, like in the chapter on Hecuba in that book, where... Um, the betrayal by her friend actually makes her character get worse. I was much more talking about the fragility of the human good. So when the French people were translating it, I said, you got to say du bien humain, not de la bonté. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that I had been misleading when that translation problem came up. It's the same with fragility of the human good would have been clunky as a title. Mm -hmm. And I think the title was a successful as a title, but anyway, it had that defect because it was too narrow. 
I was really talking about our aim to live well and to have flourishing lives. And in what ways is that fragile? And so I talked about how Greek tragedy showed the deep dimensions of fragility opened up by our love of other people, our love of our city or country, and the various things that can go wrong with all of that, some caused by so-called nature, some caused by human badness. But anyway, only at the end of the book did I get around to the idea that sometimes the damage could be so profound that it could actually eat away at the foundations of your character and make you prone to revenge. And that's a very interesting topic. I've discussed this with other feminists. Lisa Tessman has written a wonderful book called Burdened Virtues, where she talks about feminists who get hooked on revenge because of the bad experiences they suffer. And she agrees with me that this is bad, but she some she thinks, well, in the short term, it might actually be useful in a political movement and it might help get rectification. I don't agree with that part. But anyway, it's it's an interesting dialogue because people's character can be harmed through bad treatment. Mm-hmm. That's important. Trauma does bad things to your judgment and your character. So that is one thing that it means, but it's, that wasn't my main main thought. Well, Martha, you you make me want to go back and read some Greek tragedy. I, I admit it's been yeah. several decades since I've I've read any. What are your favorites? I, mean, I can imagine if we're talking about Sophocles, Euripides, and Aeschylus mainly here. But um, what would you recommend for our listeners to read for the first well, time? I do particularly love Euripides' Trojan Women mm-hmm. because it really does show, and and for today. It's particularly important. All the bad things that war can do if we precipitously go to war and we don't take thought for how we treat people in the process. But I love the Oresteia of the East Coast because that's all about putting an end to revenge culture. Mm-hmm. It's all about how democracy gets going by the, will- the willingness to give up the right to take personal revenge as a, a mm. way of undergoing justice. But instead of now the furies, we've got law courts. And so I, I think that's, it's not exactly tragic because it's a very happy ending. But it is, of course, a tragic trilogy that began with some really awful things. But I really like the idea that flawed though our political institutions are, they really have hope inside them. That is the hope of ending a certain way of dealing with people by personal revenge. Hmm. Instead, we get the rule of law, which is not perfect by any means, but it's a lot better than what would otherwise be. Hmm. Martha, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much. This has been a great discussion.